What does it mean for Christians to be created in the image of God? It starts at a really basic place, and that is of serving people out of recognition that they are made in the image of God. You know, the idea really simply is that what people ought to receive is that there are certain ways that they should be viewed and treated simply because they're people. But I think as Christians, we're called to bring a helping hand to anybody who's in need. So we serve the world around us in whatever way that we can. And we especially show that by caring for one another within the family of God. Welcome to the special Human Dignity series on the Way Home podcast. For the next several weeks, we'd like to highlight topics from my brand new book, The Dignity Revolution, where we focus on exactly what it means to be created in the image of God, what it means both for how we think about ourselves, but also how we think about the world around us. My first guest is Rich Stearns, who is the president and CEO of World Vision. And first of all, he was gracious enough to write a really nice foreword for the Dignity Revolution. But secondly, Rich, almost more than anybody in the American Evangelical Church, has really embodied what it means to live out this ethic of human dignity. He's led World Vision for about 20 years. World Vision has a presence in about 100 countries, and they come alongside the most vulnerable people around the world, people in war-torn countries, people who are refugees, people who are enduring natural disasters with care and relief and the good news of the gospel in a way that few other organizations are equipped or, or can do. So we'll talk to Rich about what it means in a global world to love your neighbor. Before we jump into this interview, I'd like to let you know that the Dignity Revolution is available for pre-order. And for a limited time, if you pre-order my book, we'd like to give you a free one-year subscription to Light Magazine. This is a terrific magazine that comes out twice a year and features really original and fresh essays and articles and interviews about important topics to the Christian life. So go to my website, danieldarling.com, click on the image for the Dignity Revolution, and you'll have instructions there on how you can pre-order my book and also get a free subscription to Light Magazine. Rich, thanks for joining me. Yeah, it's good to have this conversation, Dan. Rich, we're talking at a time uh, in your life where you're kind of in a transition, uh, stepping away from leadership uh, at World Vision. So first, I just want to kind of ask, how, how do you feel feel about that? And uh, what are you thinking right now in terms of how that's going? Well, I think I feel I feel good about it. I, I feel a little bit like a runner that's uh, completing a marathon, and uh, it's kind of nice to see it coming to an end. Uh, it's been 20 years of pretty intense uh, uh, work and uh, a lot of travel, I think almost 3 million air miles. Mm. And uh, so I feel good. I'm you know in my late 60s, and I just really feel it's the right season for me to step aside and for a, a new leader with a fresh vision to step in. Uh, and we're trying to model a great transition for ministries here by doing something, hopefully, that'll be very uh, smooth and seamless and uh, and godly. And uh, my successor is a, an amazing person. Mm. You've had, I'm sure, a chance to reflect uh, just back on your 20 years at World Vision. And uh, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on here to talk, first of all, thanks for writing the foreword for uh, the Dignity Revolution, number one. Number two, just to, just to really reflect on uh, if anybody has seen up close sort of the the scale and depth of human suffering around the world, and mm-hmm. but also what Christians can do when they 
really uh, get a glimpse of what God would have us to do, it would be you just having traveled and seen all that. As you're reflecting on sort of 20 years leading World Vision, what are some things you've learned in your course of time there about the call of God to uh, on Christians to serve the least of these? Well, um, I've learned a lot about this, but um, you know, I, I just really believe that we see it in John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And uh, I sometimes say, especially in our current climate, that John 3.16 does not say, for God so loved the United States of America that he sent his one and only son. And so the challenge we always have, and this is somewhat human nature, is uh, how do we love the world. How do we love people who are very different from us, who culturally, ethnically, language, uh, even faith differences, how do we love them in the same way that God loves them? How do we lift up the idea that the child of a Syrian refugee is just as precious to God as an American child uh, who goes to our church in our community? And you know, our founder, Bob Pierce, uh, prayed this famous prayer now. Uh, he, he said this, let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. And, and I think what that's a symbolic prayer for me because the way I'm wired, my heart will not be broken by reading an article in the newspaper about some child in some remote place. Let's say it's one of the children of the Rohingya in Myanmar that is living in appalling conditions, persecuted, a refugee, uh, hungry, uh, you know, unhealthy, drinking bad water. If I read an article about that in the newspaper, um, my heart is not going to be broken uh, just by reading that article because it just seems so distant and far away. And so I think the challenge for us as followers of Christ is how do we learn to love people far away who are different from us uh, with something approaching the same passion that we love our own children or our the children of our best friends or our brothers and sisters, our nieces and nephews. Um, and we have to work at that because it, it just doesn't happen naturally. We have to work at that. It really does seem, Rich, that we're asking the same rhetorical questions of Jesus that the religious leaders asked him 2,000 years ago, who, who is my neighbor? And isn't it about seeing the people on the other side of the, the world as our neighbors? Well, I think it absolutely is. And, uh, you know, if you look at the life of Christ and the ministry of Jesus on earth, he got in trouble with the religious leaders of the day by touching, helping, speaking to, associating with all the wrong people, right? Mm. People that were ethnically wrong, uh, Samaritans. Uh, people that were unclean, a leper. Uh, it, it was unthinkable for a Jewish rabbi to come into contact with, let alone touch, someone with leprosy at the time, because lepers had been labeled as unclean and, uh, you know, someone that should not be encountered by a religious leader. A woman with the issue of blood, uh, you know, blind Bartimaeus, um, Zacchaeus, uh, you know, who was, I think, a tax collector and wealthy and so Jesus, uh, he cut across all of those cultural and religious and even political taboos in his time 
to demonstrate to the world that every one of these people is precious. Every mm -hmm. one of these people is worth dying for, uh, in his case. Uh, and, and of course, that's what he did. And so how do we, uh, in the 21st century, embrace that same kind of uh, self-sacrificial love uh, for the other, people that are other than us, different from us, that, that Jesus seemed to embody. And, and, and what my concern is, uh, especially in, you know, in these times, is many of us as Christians are falling into the ancient, ancient trap of labeling whole groups of people and then somehow diminishing their value as humans. So maybe a good example is Syrian refugees. Um, uh, the American church has been slow to respond to refugees. And in fact, in a recent, I think it's a Pew poll, uh, where they asked over a thousand people, do you feel that the United States has any moral responsibility to help uh, mm. these refugees? And the lowest scoring group were white evangelical Christians in America. Mm. Only 25% said, yes, we have a responsibility to help them. Atheists, agnostics, and people that declared mm. no religious affiliation was something like 65% of the non-believers mm. said, yes, we have a responsibility to help them. So there's something wrong when non-Christians, agnostics, people with no faith at all, are demonstrating more compassion to a group of people, refugees, than evangelical Christians. And so why is that? Why, you know, why is that happening? Why are we labeling this whole group of human beings as unworthy of our compassion or concern? So these things trouble me uh, as I see this happening in our world. And, uh, and you can name a lot of groups. It could be the children at the border who have come into our country illegally but they're desperate, the children. They, you know, they, they, they have needs, they are hurting. Uh, and our first response should be compassion. Yes, we have to deal with the legal situation, but we should first respond uh, compassion uh, for these kids. And um, so there's many examples of how we tend to label whole groups of people in a way that allows us to look the other way. So, you know, that story you referenced of the Good Samaritan, who is my neighbor, the priest and the Levite in that story chose to look the other way. Mm. Uh, they saw the man in need. They had the ability to stop and help and do something, but they chose to look the other way. For whatever reason, they labeled that person on the Jericho Road as uh, unworthy of their compassion. But the Samaritan, who is the surprise character in the story, the Samaritan would have been uh, unwelcome, unloved by Jews, considered theological half-breeds, mm -hmm. the Samaritan is the one that surprisingly stops and gets involved and helps uh, the man beaten by robbers. So we're in a good Samaritan moment in our world where we don't want to be the priest and the Levite passing by on the other side of the road. Mm. It's almost like we have a hole in our gospel, right? <laughs> well, you could. that's the title of my book, The yes. Hole in Our Gospel. So yeah, I took 300 pages to describe that. <laughs> Tell me what you've learned. You know, before you took this position, you were um, in the business world. Tell me what you have just like, specifically when you travel and you're you're coming alongside some of the most vulnerable people. You know, I think most people know this, but maybe not everybody listening, that World Vision has a presence in, I think it's what, 100 countries around the yeah, world? Yeah, 100 countries. And uh, that quite often it's 
it's um, World Vision that is called upon to sort of come in in a war-torn situation or a famine or any sort of uh, desperate situation to provide care that really nobody else can do. What mm-hmm. if you when, you, when you're when you're going into situations like these and you're coming alongside people who are in desperate need, what is going through your heart and mind and what, what have you learned from, from things, from those moments? Well, I think there's both, you know, personal and professional uh, reactions to those situations because I have a professional responsibility to find a way to mobilize support so that we can respond to those people. So I'm thinking, how am I going to raise this money? How am I going to find the resources uh, to help to, to give what they need in their, in their hour of trial? But on the personal side, it, it's, it's just heartbreaking. I mean, that prayer of our founder, let my heart be broken. Well, my heart's been broken uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of times in the last 20 years because I've been an eyewitness to this kind of human suffering and this kind of hopelessness that we find in so many places around the world. And so, uh, and and the other thing that I have learned is that there is no substitute for meeting a person face-to-face and hearing their story. And I am quite confident that I could take almost any American citizen, Christian or not, and if I could take them to South Sudan in the middle of the Civil War, if I could take them into Lebanon or Jordan to meet some of the Syrian refugees or to Myanmar to meet some of the Rohingya people that are being persecuted, every person that I took to that meeting would have their heart broken and would come home from that trip saying, I'm going to find a way to help these people. Uh, because when you meet somebody, when you sit in their home and you, and you cry with them and you, you, you see the looks on the faces of their children and you see the suffering, uh, you got to be a pretty cold-hearted person to say, you know, I don't really have any desire to help you uh, in your situation. So it's created by distance. You know, distance leads to apathy. Mm. Uh, but proximity, uh, entering into the pain of their lives, uh, almost always will produce compassion and a desire to help. And, um, uh, you know, and that's what Jesus did for us. He came close. He came close to us. He came into our pain, into our suffering, uh, and he shared it with us. And I believe that the church is called into the pain of the world. We're called, like firefighters, not to run away from the fire, but to run into the fire, Mm -hmm. uh, which takes some courage and it takes some emotional uh, resolve to say, because who, who of us wants to enter into somebody else's pain? It's not my favorite thing to do. But I think as Christians, we're called to enter the pain of the world and to be those healers, those people of peace who bring the good news of the gospel, but who also bring a helping hand to anybody who's in need. Mm-hmm. And that's easy for us to do with our own family members and maybe our own church family. Um, we've got to find ways to make it more natural for us to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, for people that are far away and different from us. And one of the things I've enjoyed that your team does and and, and World Vision is you've brought the stories of those people to us. And so you've humanized, you know, when we think of a a situation like uh, the refugee crisis, where you think of a a natural disaster somewhere or some kind of war-ravaged area, it's it's easy to think of it in sort of an abstract way or kind of a new story. But to actually read about and see images of actual people who are in those situations really kind of, as you said, it gives us proximity. And then then it's hard to look away because 
you're responsible for what we know and what we see, right? That's right. And, you know, just we've seen that even play itself out in the last few years. Um, I think it was 2015 where this shocking photo of a little boy's dead body lying on a beach in Turkey. Uh, he had died, drowned, trying to flee from the violence in Syria. And a policeman picked up this uh, little boy, I think he was three or four years old, picked up his dead body. And that picture went around the globe. Mm. And it horrified people because it got through all of the filters. And every one of us looked at that little boy and said, that could have been my little boy. And it mobilized support. Millions of dollars came into World Vision after that photo was published. It wasn't even our photo. It was just in the news. Mm. So every once in a while, something breaks through and we see the humanity of the people that we've, you know, maybe ignored uh, because we're busy and we've, you know, get busy lives. And so we always try to bring the stories back because it's the stories of people. When, when we realize those people are very much like us, they have the same hopes and dreams that we have, the same fears. Uh, that's when we connect with them, and that's when we start to care and uh, we start to feel their pain, and we want to do something to help. So I know for a lot of people just the sheer size and scale of human suffering around the world is, is, is overwhelming, almost a little paralyzing, you know, because pe most people are thinking, I, you know, I, I can't do much. I'm not president of world vision or I'm not working at the ERLC or I'm not, you know, in, in a position of influence. I'm just a regular average person. What can I even do to, to make any kind of difference? And it seems like this, the, the size and scope of suffering can almost cause us to not do anything. And so what, what would you say to that? Well, there's a, a phrase we use here, don't fail to do something just because you can't do everything. Um, and so you're right. I mean, global poverty, human suffering, is it can be overwhelming. Um, but if all of us say it's hopeless, why bother, um, then nothing will get done. But if all of us say we can do our part, you know, I'll do my part, I'll give a little, I'll volunteer a little, I'll give a portion of my time or my money uh, to help, the, the sum total of that is a massive amount of money. I mean, uh, we have something like 800,000 child sponsors in the United States. Uh, those people who are giving a dollar, dollar thirty a day to sponsor a child, collectively, that is a lot of money, and we're able to help millions of people uh, and children through that child sponsorship uh, commitment that people have made. Uh, the other stat I sometimes use, um, you know, World Vision is very involved with trying to bring clean water to communities that don't have clean water, if you can imagine living without water uh, in your home. And um, the cost to bring clean water to one person, essentially for their lifetime, is about $50, $50. So then the question becomes, if it only costs $50 to transform a person's life uh, for their lifetime, uh, to prevent disease, to prevent sickness, uh, um, how many children do I want to take? How many $50 bills can I find in my bank account mm. to bring clean water to people? Because that is such a, an amazing bargain and, and it's such a life-transforming gift. So a little bit of money can, can be transformational in the life of a child or a family or a community. So we have to remember that. So if, if we all do a little, mm. uh, you know, I, there's a chapter in my book that I call A Mountain of Mustard Seeds because Jesus once said, if you have 
even the faith of a mustard seed, you can move this mountain. Uh, you can tell this mountain to be thrown into the ocean. And, and I, so I use the idea, well, what if you had a mountain of mustard seeds? You know, what if Jesus meant that, you know, if every one of us took a shovel, uh, we could, sh one shovel full at a time, we could throw that mountain into the ocean. Uh, uh, so let's all grab our shovels. Let's all take our mustard seed of faith and put it together with our brothers and sisters. And the things that we can do collectively uh, are remarkable uh, when we, we all do our part. Mm. What has encouraged you? We've talked about some of the things that are disappointing about Christians in terms of sort of the way we view, you know, refugees and immigrants and some of the attitudes that keep us from doing what we should be doing. But what has encouraged you, uh, I guess, on, on the positive side in your travels around the world as you see the body of Christ mobilizing to help the most vulnerable? Yeah. Well, I've been probably too hard on uh, Christians here in America in, my, in the earlier part of my remarks. I'm also encouraged by the number of American Christians who are incredibly generous. I mean, we've even had people sponsoring children that are homeless and, and call us up and say, I'm homeless, I'm living in my car, but I think I can still keep sponsoring my child. Um, I might be late on some of my payments, but please hang in there with me until I find employment again. And we hear stories like that, which are, just are incredibly inspiring. Uh, we hear from senior citizens on fixed incomes that are skipping a meal every day so they can afford to sponsor a child. Um, we've got Christians with high net worth that are giving millions of dollars a year to help uh, people around the world. So I'm equally inspired by the generosity of so many Christians and many, many churches in the United States as well. Um, but I think even more inspirational to me as I travel around the world is the, to see what the global church is doing, how big and how wide the impact of the Church of Jesus Christ globally is. Maybe a really good example is the churches in Lebanon. Uh, Lebanon is a tiny country, about four million people, uh, with a very troubled past uh, to Beirut and violence and terrorism and all things that uh, are common to some of these Middle Eastern countries. But uh, when the Syrian refugee crisis happened, uh, it's estimated that as many as 2 million Syrian refugees fled into Lebanon, seeking asylum, seeking safety, asking for help. And the indigenous churches there, um, the ancient Christian churches of Lebanon, have responded and have welcomed these refugees who are predominantly Muslim and are doing everything they can to help them with food, with shelter, with counseling. Um, and it's just so inspirational to see what these pastors, and some of them are priests from Catholic or Orthodox backgrounds, are doing to help these desperate people. And, so, and we see this in Africa, we see this in Asia, we see what the indigenous churches are doing um, to help in across Africa during the AIDS pandemic, you know, we saw thousands of African churches mobilize to care for their own widows and orphans uh, in distress, as the Book of James calls them. Uh, so it is inspirational when you see this, the movement of the Christian faith globally and the impact it is having on the world. And that's the mission that Christ gave his church, that it was going to be a movement of his followers that were going to transform the world and be ambassadors of his love for the world and ambassadors for the gospel. Mm. Uh, one last question. Uh, as you 
sort of exit the the stage at World Vision, uh, what what would you like your legacy to be, or what would you like to be remembered uh, for during your time there? Well, you know, I've said to my wife before, uh, the only thing I want on my tombstone is the words "He was faithful." Mm. <laughs> and, and you know, I'm I'm no better than anybody that works for World Vision, and we have more than forty thousand people around the world that work uh, mm. for this organization. And I'm just trying to be faithful with what God has put in front of me in terms of my responsibilities, what he's entrusted with me, to me. And, uh, but none of this work gets done without literally tens of thousands of um, staff around the world that are doing this. Some are working in very difficult and even dangerous conditions. And then, you know, several million donors across the world who support our work, who are doing amazing things to, you know, help other people. So... Uh, my legacy, you know, just hopefully people say he was faithful with what was entrusted to him. Uh, as I look back over 20 years, there, you know, are a few milestones that were significant to me. You know, one was the AIDS pandemic in the early 2000s when World Vision, we chose to embrace uh, getting involved with helping uh, people with HIV and AIDS in Africa and especially their children and spouses uh, widows and orphans in many cases. And we helped turn the tide of uh, stigma in the American church, and we helped mobilize uh, millions of American Christians to respond uh, through their giving and their prayer. Um, so that was a, a real milestone in my early time at World Vision. I think this refugee crisis of the last five to seven years has been another passion of mine to try to rally American support and concern for these refugees. And I'm particularly proud of the work that World Vision has done in reaching out to the refugees in the Middle East in particular. And then I would maybe mention our clean water uh, program. We're now the largest provider of clean water in the world. Um, we bring clean water to between three and four million uh, people each year. And uh, you know that's been really uh, gratifying to see how that water has changed the lives of people. And just lastly, I, I'm just so proud to be associated with an organization that uh, doesn't just bring clean water, but we bring living water. We don't just bring food, but mm -hmm. we bring the bread of life. We, we're trying to be faithful to the call of Christ to help carry out the Great Commission and to do so while living into the Great Commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves. And uh, that's what gets me out of bed every morning and something I'm really proud of this organization. That's really great. Well, thank you, Rich, both for your leadership and really, uh, I think, being a leader in the church to really push us uh, to, to where we should be, to be on mission for God, to come alongside the most vulnerable. And thank you for um, endorsing and writing a forward for my book and for the Dignity Revolution and for being on this podcast. I uh, really appreciate it. And if I can, I'd like to put in a plug for that book. The Dignity Revolution is a book that every Christian and every pastor in America should read because uh, we have such an opportunity uh, to change the world, but it starts with embracing the human dignity of every person who lives here and protecting every life, uh, born and unborn, uh, on our planet. And when Christians do that, it changes the world uh, and it attracts people to the gospel. And so it's an important book, Dan, and I'm so grateful you wrote it. Well, thank you, Rich. I appreciate that. And uh, just thank you for the friendship and thanks for being on the podcast.
Thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes. You can catch previous episodes on danieldarling.com. The Way Home is produced by Gary Lancaster and scheduling by Marie Delph. The Way Home is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention.